The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, and they're called Gospels, which means good news, because they are accounts of Jesus. And Jesus is the good news of God given to us. And so in Matthew 1, which is what we're going to focus on today, we get the foundational answer to who is this person, who is Jesus the Christ. And that's a question that anybody would have after reading the 39 books of the Old Testament. Who is this baby that's born Jesus, and why is it good news that he has come? That's the question Matthew's answering through chapter 1 and chapter 2, really all the way through chapter 28, but especially here in chapter 1. And so here's the implicit question he's answering. Who is Jesus? And here's the answer he'll give us on this Christmas day. Jesus is a baby born in a unique way and for a unique purpose. All right, those are the two parts of the sermon today. Very simple teaching this morning. So Jesus is the baby born first part one in a unique way. And then part two, for a unique purpose. And today we're going to look at um, God's promise through this uniquely born and uniquely purposed baby, but through the lens of Joseph. And we don't normally hear it through the lens of Joseph, because we normally hear it through the lens of Mary or the shepherds or the wise men. And sometimes Joseph is the forgotten historical figure. So the title of today's teaching is Joseph and Jesus. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 959. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. You'll want to turn there and we'll look at the verses that were just read. Joseph and Jesus. And the first thing the text wants us to know about Joseph is really interesting. The first thing the text wants us to know is that Joseph did not father Jesus. Look in Matthew 1 and just notice some of the verses that were not read. Look at the very... Beginning, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of the descendant of David, the son of the descendant of Abraham. These are very important people to be singled out. These are the key covenants that God made in the Old Testament. God promised a special king through David who would have an eternal kingdom. And God promised a special descendant through Abraham who would bless all the world. This is that special descendant. But now we're going to notice a cadence That is broken when it comes to Joseph. Look in verse 2. We won't read all of these, but it would be helpful to translate it this way in English. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah. And so on and so on and so on and so on. Now look in verse 16. Jacob fathered Joseph, but now notice how different the language is. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So in verse 16, we notice this incredible break of the pattern. Joseph did not father Jesus. Anyone reading this for the very first time, and try to imagine that. I know it's Christmas Day, and so we probably feel that we know the narrative very well. But put yourself in a total newbie's shoes. And you're reading Matthew, just... You're a coworker handed you the Bible and you picked up with Matthew and you read all these people who father children like normal. And then in verse 16, this person who didn't father his son, how then was the son born would be your obvious question. And Matthew answers it in verse 18. So look in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place 
in this way. So Christmas actually purposes to explain how this baby was born in a unique, one-of-a-kind way. No one has ever been born this way. Only he was born this way without a human father. So how was he born then? And the text will tell us. Let's continue in verse 18. It took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Amazing. So this is a baby born not through normal procreation or human parentage, but one who is born from the Holy Spirit. Now the word betrothed, I'll just explain it quickly, would historically mean something very serious. It's a very serious commitment two people would have to one another before marriage, but very much intending it to end in marriage. The purpose of it was a time to prove chastity and commitment to each other. And so for someone to be found with child in the betrothal period is like the worst possible outcome. Third, this would only be fulfilled betrothal when the couple was married. So how is this baby born without a father? The answer is the baby is born supernaturally from the Holy Spirit. Now that's the big theological answer. So how is this baby born? He's born supernaturally from the Holy Spirit. But the theological collides with the personal. Please hear me this morning. That's how it always works. The theological always collides with the personal. There are no such thing as abstract theological questions. Is there a God? Is there eternity? Is there right? Is there wrong? These are never abstract questions. They're always colliding with our personal lives. And I want you to notice that the incarnation, the supernatural virgin birth, very much collides with their lives, and particularly we see Joseph's. So put yourself in his sandals. Here's the human element. Mary, the woman to whom he's betrothed, is found with child. What what would you do? You've not been with her. She's pregnant. How will he respond? In fact, look at the verse, <coughs> excuse me, verse 18. <coughs> Sorry, <laughs> I had to cough that out, excuse me. All right, verse 18 says, before they came together, she was found. So the word found means visible. It was visible that she was pregnant. If you put the Gospels together, she'd be at least four months pregnant at this point. But Joseph doesn't know how or why. Probably Mary and Joseph haven't even had an opportunity to speak privately about what she has heard from an angel. And so God, in grace, has an angel speak to Joseph. But before that happens, Joseph has to deliberate in his own heart. What am I going to do? So look in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being, this is important, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We see two virtues in Joseph here. First, we see that he's just. He wants to do what's right. He assumes someone has been unfaithful to him, unfaithful to their bond and commitment. So the right thing would for them to not move forward, at least until that's dealt with. But notice not only is he just, but he's also merciful because it says he's unwilling to put her to shame. Though it was uncommon in the first century, it was 
impossible that someone could pursue the full punitive potentiality of the law. You could push for stoning for someone who was caught in a situation like Mary's. But Joseph doesn't do that at all. He chooses the most merciful and yet just path. He wants to end the relationship in a way that's just, but also in a way that's private and not embarrassing to her. And just as he's ready to do that, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph hears what we as the readers have already heard, that this baby was born in a unique way. But again, I want you to notice that the theological is colliding with the personal. The impact of who God is, is impacting someone's personal life. So first let me explain why the incarnation? Why was God sent to be born supernaturally of the Holy Spirit rather than through normal human procreation or parentage? Well, three reasons. If you're a note taker, I'll give you three. Here's the first. The first thing that the virgin birth shows us is that humanity's hope had to come outside of, but willing to come into humanity. Humanity's hope had to come outside of, but also willing to come into humanity. That is very challenging to the way we culturally think. We tend to think the answers are within. The most powerful resource is our own selves. If you want something done right, what's the rest of the phrase? Do it yourself. Here the Bible says, if you want something done right, you should probably sit down. (laughs) So this text is actually telling us right up front that humanity's hope cannot come from within humanity. Must come from outside of humanity and yet be willing to enter into humanity. The virgin birth makes clear there is no hope eternally in humanity. Why is that? We know from the beginning of the Bible, God created our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, and they lived in ideal conditions. And yet in those conditions, with the presence of God walking with them in the cool of the day, they chose to listen to the deception of Satan, distrust the character of God, and then disobey the command of God. And in their sin, we sinned through them as our representatives, and we have followed their pattern in our own lives subsequently, if we're honest. We too have distrusted and disobeyed God. We too have rejected His presence. And so humanity's hope cannot come from us. It must come apart from the paternity of inherited sin and guilt endemic to the human race. That's why Jesus is born supernaturally. He is not an inheritor of original sin, but instead the head of a new and better covenant. All right, so the first hope had to come outside of us. But now the second, this is the good news. The virgin birth means God has chosen to come to us and for us. Isn't this previewed in the Garden of Eden? After Adam and Eve sin, they hide. But God pursues them. And on Christmas Day, God pursues them all the way. He pursues us into the human race even so that He can do for humans what we could never do for ourselves. 
So Christmas means God has come to us and come for us. But the third thing that the virgin birth means on Christmas, not only do we need hope outside of us to come into us, not only is it good news that God has come to us and for us, but it third means that God is literally with us. So Hebrews 4 says it this way, we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. If you've ever felt like you're experiencing something that God cannot understand, He can actually. He can. There's never going to be a trial you experience or a temptation you have that Jesus cannot relate with. Christmas makes clear that Jesus joins us and actually knows suffering better than us. So first, the question was, who is Jesus? And the first answer is Jesus is a baby born in a unique way. He is God with us, to us, and for us. But now the second answer is Jesus is a baby born for a unique purpose. And now look in verse 21. The angel goes on to say to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Dr. Charles Quarles teaches at Southeastern and he's really sharp and he's written on this passage. He writes, this is the central message of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 121 is the programmatic statement of the gospel. That's a fancy way of saying this is the thesis statement of the whole book. And I think Dr. Quarles is correct. I think Matthew 121 is the most important verse in the entire book of Matthew. And because of that reason, we're going to slow way down and get out our magnifying glass. Let's look at just the second half of verse 21. Really digging into each phrase. Here's the second half. Why is he called Jesus? Because, and here's what we're going to focus on, he will save his people from their sins. Let's first get out the magnifying glass on the word save. The word save means to be rescued from transcendent destruction, to be spared from eternal death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This is a description of eternal separation. Or think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not, the Greek word is apulami, perish. This is what we need to be saved from, from eternal destruction. But the main promise is that God has sent a Savior. Who does He save? Let's get out the magnifying glass on the next phrase. He will save who? His people. At first blush, you might think, well, His people must be the Jews. I'll quote Dr. Quarles again. He writes, at first, one might assume His people simply refers to the Jewish nation, but the promise that Jesus will save, not may save, indicates that Jesus' true people are those whom He saves, actually. I think, again, Dr. Quarles is, is right. Who are Jesus' people? The answer are those who believe in Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, those will primarily not be Jews, right? So Matthew 1, verse 1, here's the descendant of David and of Abraham. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, go to all the nations. So what happens in between those 28 chapters are he came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right and authority to become the sons and daughters of God. So who are His people? Those who receive Him. 
Obviously, the key question for you and I this morning on Christmas is, am I one of God's people? Am I one of those people that gets saved? And the only answer is, am I trusting in Jesus because only he saves? What does he save? How does he save? We're going to look at just one word. Look at the word from. It seems like a small word, but it's important because from means that we're already condemned. From means we need to be saved out of something that we're already bound up in. John 3, I already quoted verse 16, 17 says, He sent His Son not into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through Him might be saved. But then verse 18 says this, Whoever believes on the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, the text says. Did you know that no one is neutral? No one's on the fence about Jesus. The Bible says actually we are saved or we are already condemned. We just haven't fully experienced the sentence. That's why the word from is there. We need to be saved out of the situation we're already in. Saved out of sin's penalty, power, and presence. But now, magnifying glass on one last phrase, the last two words of the verse. We explain save, we explain his people, we explain from, but now the last two words of the verse, save from their sins. Do you notice how important the pronouns are? These are not his sins. These are our sins. Again, the problem is actually in us, and the solution has to come outside of us, but praise God at Christmas, it has. God has sent Jesus. And He is called Jesus because Jesus means Yahweh saves. And that's what Yahweh is doing through Jesus. Saving us from sin. Sin is in our hearts. Sin is in our culture. Sin permeates the cursed creation like a virus spreading Throughout it. That doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it could be. It does mean that nothing is as good as it should be. And so sin affects all of us and everything, but it can be cured and eradicated only by a sinless Savior. And that's who Jesus is. And He's come. And He will come again. He was born to die. And He'll return as King. Look in verse 22 and 23 to see what He is. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So please remember this at Christmas. Christmas means that God came to us. God came for us so that God could be with us. And the reason that can be achieved is because this baby is born in a manger in the shadow of a cross. And he goes to that cross to remove what has separated us from our creator, sin. At the cross, sin is condemned. Sin is destroyed. Death is destroyed. Satan is destroyed. It is canceled, eradicated, and executed, and Christ rises. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself in His own body, bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. All right, I told you Matthew's answering a theological question. Who is Jesus? He's a baby born in a unique way, a supernatural virgin birth. He's a baby born for a unique purpose, 
God came to us and for us so He could be with us. But then I told you that the theological always collides with the personal. It's never abstract. Learning about God always impacts lives. So now look at how it impacted Joseph. We close out with verse 24 and 25. Here's how the theological and personal collide. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is remarkable the way the theological has collided with the personal. Let me unpack it for us so we don't miss it. First, Joseph obeyed God's word through faith. Did you see in the text? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Second, he married a woman choosing a life of social shame. So though the easy route would have been to break things off with Mary, he chose the costly route, and for the rest of their lives, they experienced social murmurs and shame. Third, look at verse 25. It says, he knew her not. He remained abstinent even after marriage until after the birth of Christ to protect and preserve her virginity. But notice what he does most humbly at the end of verse 25. He committed to raising a son he did not father and calling him a name he did not choose. Because the theological, when it collides with the personal, there are always signs of impact. Can you imagine something as big as God entering your life without it leaving an impression? Joseph's life is different. But think about it. How could it not be? If God comes into your life, isn't it always leaving an impact? You could ask, why did God do it this way? I mean, why didn't God have the angel tell everybody Why just tell them privily? I mean, it ruined their reputation. Many women spend their whole life thinking about their wedding day, but Mary wouldn't get one without scandal. Everything about them now is difficult. But again, I ask you, can we really imagine the theological colliding with the personal without leaving impact? In our own relationships, when a relationship changes, doesn't it affect you? When someone gets married, you're not the same as you were before you were married. When you have a child, life drastically changes. If God comes into our life, how much more should we expect that it alters everything about us? I fear that in America, we've counterfeited true Christianity for a superficial version that doesn't alter your life at all. I have friends who are missionaries in the Middle East and I receive their missionary updates still. This week I was reading their Christmas letter about everything that's been going on with them in the Middle East this year. And I I know these people well. And when we get together and talk, all the stories they talk about, about people who come to know Christ, it changes everything. And 2,000 years ago when they came to know Christ, it changed everything. So don't buy the American counterfeit where you can know God and it has no impact. Knowing Christ changes everything. If someone was to object, well, this is unfair. Joseph and Mary now have to endure hardship that they don't deserve. But what was prophesied of their son? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers in silence, so he opened not his mouth. 
Jesus wouldn't defend himself even though his life was full of false accusation. And then he expected that to be normal for all of us. In Matthew 5, verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus will famously say, If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And historically, the very first people to deny themselves to follow Jesus were his parents. I want to remind us this morning that in our culture, if a man finds out a woman he's serious about is pregnant and the child is not his, he would immediately think about breaking off the relationship or somehow terminating the situation because we value independence and freedom. But actually here what Joseph does is he chooses self-denial and inconvenience because he recognizes that this baby is his Savior and his God. So learn from Joseph and how he responds to Jesus. Christmas changed the world. Christmas changed creation. How has it changed you? When the theological collides with the personal, there should be deep impact that alters us forever for the better. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. God, we thank You so much, Lord, that You have collided with humanity by sending Your Son to save us from our sin. And so I first pray, Lord, if anyone this morning hasn't yet asked Jesus to be their Savior, that You would move them to do so. Thank You that what He has done is sufficient and is indeed the only way for us to be reunited with our Creator and to have eternity with God. Thank You for what Jesus did in His birth, in humility, in His cross, in humiliation, and even more finally in His resurrection, which gives us eternal hope that cannot be put to shame. But God, I also pray that we would not settle for a counterfeit version of the gospel that doesn't alter our life or freedom at all. One in which we claim Christ, but in reality, we remain king. May we see from Joseph in this very passage, a man who denied himself and rejected the autonomy that we tend to clutch to because he sacrificed it to follow his child as his savior and God. And may that be true of us. May Christmas come home to us in such a way that it leaves an impact and it alters what we otherwise would have thought was most important. So may Christ be King in our lives for His glory. And in His name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, Go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e b c r a l e i g h dot com.